Thank you so much. Indeed, it was a crazy idea just to go for one day, for Saturday, to Moscow University. And, but the reason is, in fact, that it has an amazing tradition of having Chemist Day, which is always first Saturday after 9th of May, which was 13th of May this year. And everybody, everybody who graduated from the chemistry department, not everybody, but this is the reunion day. And uh, the way it is done, let me show the picture from Saturday. Um, here is chemistry department. You could see a huge periodic table on it. This is Lomonosov. And if you highlight of it, that says day of chemists. This says chemistry department. And the reason there is this, uh, the periodic table is there is that every year there are a lot of festivities crazy activities um, related to yet another uh, element in the periodic table. So two days ago it was day of tellurium and then of course it's not as interesting as when I was uh, there um, 40, 35 years ago when every element was different. Now metals, metals. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, tellurium was two days ago but notice that I place it um, on the part where I say icing. And the reason is that not only that picture from Harvard where I show these pile of snow that are in fact not snow, these are cars, and for those of you who were not here last time, here's a window in the car and there was really a lot of snow. But two days ago, um, this is already in the middle of the day, so it's a little bit better, but middle of May in Moscow, entire, uh, it was all coated with snow. So snow is everywhere and sometimes getting here until May. So what I wanted to do, and you will see how I will now connect it again to the last lecture, I wanted to show you a couple of uh, things and uh, maybe give some statistics um, on how heavy things like snow, like ice and other things, on our um, economies, and in, in particular in terms of energy that it takes. So if we talk about icing, if we talk about frosting, and I would just, out of the entire range of frosting problems, I will look at refrigeration, because we've done some of the um, digging of finding how much energy takes just simply defrosting procedures that take place in every refrigerator. Those frost-free refrigerators that we all have now, they're not frost-free. It's just automatically, it switches every, generally about every half an hour, defrosts everything and switches on again. So a lot of energy, in fact, about 11% uh, of um, energy and, and, and altogether is 4% of all energy, and 11% of it goes to defrosting. Yet another one, and I decided to put those problems that are very difficult to solve, and in particular the, another one is marine fouling. And if we look at the uh, collection of these mussels and, 
and uh, all kinds of marine life that really love to live on everything we have. And if we look at the effect this, uh, um, even if we look on one thing, if we think about drag reduction, and therefore what, how much fuel cost will go into, onto the ship that would develop either um, very soft fouling or more specific calcareous fouling and then heavy calcareous fouling. And heavy is muscles and barnacles and it pretty much always goes to this one. So if you look on the uh, change in shaft power, it gives you about 100% change in shaft power. And in other words, it penalty in that is about 60 um, billion dollars per year only in fuel expenses. Let me show you another one. And th those that I show you, actually those that really surprise me in terms of how much energy they have. So here is wastewater tre treatment membranes. You bubble air through them and uh, bubbling air, uh, <coughs> oxygen in particular, just to make sure that you take care of uh, contamination in these membranes. This is how it looks when it's clean. Then after a very short time of operation, it's all clogged because it's wastewater. There is so much that can be attached to, these, um, uh, uh, to the pores of these membranes. But for specific operation, operation, you need to keep a certain size of the bu bubbles that come through the pores. So to do that, as uh, membranes clog, the pressure is increased, constantly increased, to push, uh, to be able to push um, air through the pores the same way. And if you look at that, at least in US, um, it's really, in fact, almost 1% of electricity goes to that, and it's really heavy problem. We discussed last time uh, that one has to think about how to protect surfaces from liquids, and in particular contaminating liquids, and we're discussing just going through lessons in liquid repellency that depending whether you have flat surface, textured surface, wetting stage, non-wetted textured surface, or chemically heterogeneous surfaces, there is a characteristic contact angle that these liquids take. And one of the approaches that we discussed in the last lecture, and a kind of a natural thing to expect, if you want to keep the surfaces, you want to keep materials clean, and we know that uh, lotus leaf knows how to do it, maybe actually to take lessons from the lotus leaf and keep surfaces in this cassie wetting state when the droplets are sitting on a cushion of air and therefore can easily roll off the surface. And in fact, we also, in synthetic surfaces, they behave pretty much like biological in repelling water. However, as I mentioned last time, the moment you go to anything but water, you really have to do something special to use um, that strategy, to use superhydrophobicity strategy to keep your surfaces clean. Again, I repeat something that uh, if those of you who were not here last lecture, I want to make a point of if we try to make new materials based on, on natural and biological principles, we really need to find the proper biological uh, role model. 
And if we do want to deal with ice, if we do want to deal with contaminations with anything other than water, we need to find biological system that actually teaches you something of that. Because otherwise, whatever you try to do, whether you use high pressure, then you um, go into Wenzel state, very sticky regime, because air on which your droplets are sitting would be pushed away. If you go to high temperature, um, it will fail because surface tension of water goes down. And definitely, if you even use uh, different surface tension liquids, um, it's all that. Then there is another range of problems. And if we talk about ice, ice is not water. And in particular, in the cases when we think about condensation conditions, when it's not about droplets of water on a cold surface that freeze or not freeze, but it's when it's transitioned from the vapor phase, then you actually can have um, nucleation everywhere on your structured surfaces, and then your problem is even more pronounced than before. So I put uh, last time this whole range of uh, crazy, difficult problems, whether it's icing, whether it's medical devices, or thinking about oil transport, windows, and so on, and uh, of course marine fouling that, that I mentioned before, and there could be a longer list. And uh, just to give you an idea of what happened uh, um, when uh, it's, uh, it's about now eight, I think, years ago, when um, we decided to let's do something different. And I had a wonderful postdoc, um, Taksim Wong, who's now a professor in Penn State University, who said, let's make it really uh, interesting, in a sense. Let's take oil as an example. Because if we think about oil sensing and oil exploration, everything there is against the rules of superhydrophobicity. Because there you have liquids that are not water. They have low surface tension, hydrocarbons. Temperatures are high. Pressures are high. It's full of debris. All that would necessarily make superhydrophobic approach very challenging. And if you talk about optical properties, uh, in, on top of that, you actually need optical clarity to see, to test, to take uh, certain data points from the places where you are trying to find oil or to characterize oil. So it has to be transparent as well. And as I mentioned before, if now look at all these conditions, it's absolutely not possible to do it with superhydrophobic surfaces because of their uh, reasons I mentioned before, because they fail at all these conditions. Now, big goal, and the goal was almost unachievable, at least in our mind at that moment, was what if we really want truly omniphobic, meaning hating everything, surfaces, liquid repellent, but with optical transparency, scratch resistance, self-repair, self-cleaning characteristics, and maybe those who can operate in extreme environments. And to think about it, uh, the yet another way we decided to think about it was to uh, discuss the liquid repellent properties, not in terms of how to increase contact angle and make it similar to superhydrophobic lotus-related surfaces. So not to have nearly spherical droplets that roll off the surface, but rather to take um, look at 
contact angle hysteresis. And contact angle hysteresis is pretty much the simplest way to describe it, the way how the surfaces um, resist droplet movement on, on the surface. So high friction surfaces, uh, even if they're hydrophobic, doesn't matter. High friction surfaces would have very high contact angle hysteresis. So the idea is, what if we will try to think about minimizing contact angle hysteresis without even caring whether it's hydrophobic or hydrophilic? If contact angle hysteresis is zero, it means at any angle you provide to your droplet, it will slide down from the, your substrate. But then, what if we ask this question, and there is a, a dilemma actually, if we think about surfaces that can reduce contact angle hysteresis to zero. Because the ideal repellency, if we talk about phobicity, um, and even when we describe Young's equation and everything else, it's all about ideally smooth surface, surface without defects, ideally smooth, but in fact solids, and materials are solids, cannot be ideally smooth. There is always some roughness present. Another um, problem with roughness, even if you try to polish it as much as you want and functionalize it in any way you want, it would have some pinning points, and these pinning points actually contribute to um, increasing contact angle hysteresis. Now, therefore solids, which are materials, um, have the intrinsic property of really um, not perfect slippery behavior, not being uh, materials at which contact angle hysteresis can in fact be zero. Now, liquids on the other hand, liquids are not materials per se, they do not have a form, um, but liquids are defect free and molecularly smooth. So if we can think about a liquid which is not, doesn't have shape, flows away anyway, and somehow combining it with solids, that may provide a way to create friction-free, slippery surfaces. And I mentioned last time that our inspiration came from this pitcher plant that captures its prey um, insects on a wet day when there is a layer of water attached to the texture of these structures. And the same strategy is in fact in our gut or in, in our eyes or in, in the on the scales of the fish swimming in the ocean. And the idea there, again to show you what is happening, is yes, it's again structured surface very similar to the surfaces of, um, of lotus leaf. But the surface is now not hydrophobic, but hydrophilic. So let me um, remind you again, going to lessons uh, from wettability lessons, just like apparent angle on superhydrophobic surface, for a surface that has, say, contact angle of 100 degrees, the apparent angle is actually gr uh, growing on very good superhydrophobic surfaces to almost 180 degrees. Same way, if you have a structured surface which is hydrophilic, so when you have a droplet 
that has a finite but lower than 90 degrees angle on the surface, when you have a structure, this angle becomes nearly zero, which means that the liquid doesn't form a droplet on the surface, it spreads and forms a film. And the moment you have a film, so it becomes super lyophilic towards, in this biological example, towards water. So water creates a coating on your structured surface, and the structure is critical here. It needs to create these conditions su for superlyophilicity to uptake the liquid and make a smooth uh, layer on it, protecting the underlying solid so insects with their oily feet do not touch solid anymore. They're just sliding on the liquid-liquid uh, interface. And that is, of course, slippery. So what we decided to do is to think about it broadly as a concept and uh, really somewhat counterintuitive concept because roughness produces defects. Roughness is a bad thing for friction. However, we are using roughness to get rid of roughness. We are using roughness to create ultra-smooth surfaces by combining rough surfaces with a liquid that can uh, be spread on it in the form of a smooth film and in such way be held on top of the surface and create actually the interface that is slippery. And that can be done on any material and we call them slips, the slippery liquid-infused porous surfaces. And uh, just to give you more ideas of how it works, let's discuss it a little bit more detail. This is really system design, and I mentioned that already in a couple of other lectures that I had um, last week, is that in, in many ways, not that I do not believe that one material this day can do some magic, but I certainly think that hierarchical materials, material systems where you combine different materials, often orthogonal properties of components of the structures and material system that you build, if you do that, you actually get a lot of interesting performance characteristics that cannot be achieved by either of the components of any one single material that you use. So in this case, again, it is a system design where, let's say, you have your solid and you want to make your solid um, non-fouling so that it repels liquids, bacteria, you name it, something that you want not to form on these surfaces. You also know what you want to use it for. So you, can, you should remember that your acting part of your material is the liquid interface. And let's call it from now on so that not to mix the liquid on top with the liquid on the bottom. Let's call it lubricant because we're lubricating our surfaces. So we can choose the lubricant that is not interacting uh, immiscible with what we want to repel. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that lubricant would like your surface. So you need to create certain porosity on your surface, but it's not, even that is not enough, and I'll show you example why that is not enough to show how important also to functionalize this solid with molecules that provide um, good van der Waals forces between the lubricant and the solid that you create so that 
your lubricating layer stays intact on the surface and provides uh, long-term stability to the interface. And then you have combination of chemical affinity provided by this chemical functionalization and high capillary force, uh, and that gives you retention of your liquid in the porous, often nanoporous um, solid. That gives you the key feature that we discussed before, which is that gives you the ability to create um, defect-free liquid interface that covers the underlying solid and therefore things would just slide with nearly non-existent contact angle hysteresis, very close to zero, and would leave the surface um, based on that principle. Now, of course, you need to be careful in designing these surfaces. In particular, again, it's system design. There are many components here. So we need to look at that in terms of energetic stability and what should we do for this material to retain this property. So let's say we will have a solid shown here in light green with a certain roughness factor R. We also have in blue, I show the lubricant layer, but for the lubricant to like your surface, to have high affinity to it, we add functionalization that is shown here in red. And here is in pink, a droplet of liquid that you want to repel. So if you look at the interfacial properties of that system, what you need to think is not only for the uh, lubricant to be held in this surface, but also that the wetting, the, the liquid that you want to repel, shouldn't have higher affinity to your underlying substrate than the lubricant that you use. Because what would happen then is that even though at the beginning the system might be stable enough, but the moment you introduce something that you want to repel, it may replace your lubricant. So instead of blue now, here is pink, and that would be irreversible contamination of the surface. So one can look as a, on, on these systems as a uh, function of the roughness of your interface, surface tension of different components in the system, and how to create this stable film uh, when the energetic is just right, so that not only you can repel what you want to repel, but the system is stable enough and it doesn't lose your lubricant. Just to give you an idea why it is important and also to demonstrate these super lyophilic properties of the surfaces that we make. So here is the flat surface and here is the lubricating <coughs> liquid on it and, it and it likes it, so it's, it's lyophilic towards this substrate, very small contact angle. Now if I take the same material that is flat surface is made of and I structure it and I put the same droplet on it, you actually do not see the droplet anymore, it makes a continuous flat film covering the surface. So this is a demonstration of, of super lyophilicity that is required for your lubricant to have high affinity to the interface, so the formation of the continuous film is there. But even that is not uh, all, because even if I do not, sometimes if I do not functionalize this solid, 
it would still spread due to the capillary action. But let's now see what happens if I put on top of that a droplet of a liquid that has even higher affinity to your underlying solid. So the experiments that I show here, so in green, this is functionalized epoxy substrate in whatever this color, I have no idea, um, brownish. It's the same substrate with exactly the same um, uh, porosity with the same uh, structural features, but it's not functionalized with a um, silane molecule that has, that has a tail similar to the liquid that you use on top of that. Now, on top of this surface, we put a droplet of, it's, a, it's dyed so that we can see it, of pentane, very low surface tension. And blue is lubricating film here. And what we can see is that the moment you put a droplet of, of pentane on a silanized material, it nicely sheds it, nothing happens. But when you put it on the non-silanized, so not chemically functionalized surface, it begins to spread because it actually replaces your lubricant because it's much more uh, energetically stable, thermodynamically stable state would be to switch these li uh, liquids with each other. So that has to be taken into account. When you do that, you really have a platform, um, customizable platform, where you can change properties um, I wouldn't say it will, but really a lot of things that can be changed in this system. You can change your lubricant. Depending what you want to re repel, it could be fluorinated lubricants, mineral oils, silicon fluids, vegetable oils, ionic liquids, you name it. Now, with that, the solid itself, it could be metal, polymer, uh, glass, um, depending what this material is that you want to uh, make interesting. Uh, you may, and depending on the shear conditions in your system, you can control the porosity level in this. And it could be on the micron level. What I show here is a very <coughs> regular one. You actually <coughs> do not need regularity. We often use it to be able to understand physical chemical principle of why these surfaces work so that we know exactly the geometry of these interfaces. But it's not really needed. It <coughs> could be nanoscopic uh, uh, structuring or even molecular scale porosity in your system. And I'll show examples of all of them. The reason you do not have to <coughs> be so wonderfully regular as it is generally done for superhydrophobic surfaces is that, in, in fact, your solid is not the part of the system material that works. It's the interface that works. Your solid only there to hold the lubricant. And in which way you increase your porosity, regular pore size, non-regular pore, pore size, it doesn't matter as long as um, it, it, uh, it has the right average pore sizes. It is protected by this liquid anyway. So nothing is actually seeing your underlying solid. So just to begin with some of the properties, uh, right away, one of the first experiments that we've done, time is running, is uh, comparing it to superhydrophobic surfaces. These diamond data was one of the best at that time. And looking on contact angle hysteresis, for water, 
it's easy. Water is easy, but still you need something like five degrees. Uh, you will see five degrees contact angle hysteresis. A little, little bit of pinning because all the structured posts, let's say, or, or emerging parts would actually pin your liquid. But the moment you go to lower surface tension liquids, pinning is huge. And in fact, you can um, even take your surface and place it at 90 degrees uh, vertically, and it's still the droplets would not run off the surface for low surface tension liquids. While for anything we tried for, for slippery surfaces, the contact angle hysteresis is very close to zero. Yet another important property is self-healing. And self-healing um, is related to the fact that this is liquid, your lubricant, that acts as the most important part of your uh, material design. And liquids can move, liquids can flow. So if I now here compare uh, these uh, super hydrophobic surface, and this is the same exact design as this super hydrophobic surface, same material and everything, but with lubricant overlayer on it. And I'm taking a really difficult case, which is crude oil. This one is not even moving on superhydrophobic surface. You can cut your surface, and due to the fact that you create it in such a way that the lubricant that you use has high affinity to your surface, and by cutting it, you only create more area for interaction with your lubricant, so it will fill the gaps and immediately heal, uh, heal the, the property of the interface. So that self-healing property is very important, but there are other things that are important as well. So um, I show here now many examples because I wanted to uh, actually talk about this whole list of difficulties associated with real conditions and superhydrophobic surfaces. And I was talking about pressure instability, temperature instabilities, but here is an example of uh, pretty much all of them, and I'll go one by one. So this is a substrate where top one is a slippery surface, middle one is super hydrophobic Teflon, and the bottom one is nicely, highly polished, very smooth aluminum, uh, hydrophobic aluminum surface. And the reason I uh, placed it on, on the same substrate is um, I almost always ask my students to do that, not because I don't trust them with their results, but there is always a question if you compare two different samples, where the conditions the same, what is happening. These are the all three surfaces are on the same substrate, subjected to the same droplet of oil, and you immediately see the difference in performance. Um, this is an experiment done in a uh, pressure chamber going to about 10,000 PSI, um, very um, about 700 atmospheres. This is decaying. Decaying will immediately wet superhydrophobic surface. We are increasing pressure inside the chamber. This is slippery surface, and we are watching by tilting it just simply about five to ten degrees. You could see the droplet slide. So there is no problem with high pressure instability. Now the problems with um, as we know, even with water, that at high temperature, its surface tension goes down. It's system design. You can choose your substrate that is temperature stable. 
you can you choose your lubricant that works at the temperature ranges that you want. And here is the example of thinking about, again, crude oil. And I'm comparing on the left um, superhydrophobic Teflon surface, 200 degrees C substrate. This is slippery surface. You could see that the it's actually boiling, but it doesn't contaminate slippery surface. So you can design it, depending on the components that you use, to work at high temperature. You want to work at low temperature, and in particular, think about um, cases where frost is forming, not just ice. So very high humidity conditions. And here is the example of um, having aluminum plate, very high humidity conditions. The plate is at minus uh, about 5, 10 degrees, minus 5 or 10 degrees C. You could see frosting on a regular aluminum and no ice formation, no frost on the other side. So again, we would choose a different lubricant that performs at these lower temperatures in this case. And I'll talk about aluminum in a second because it's a very good example of how one can make these surfaces very easily. Yet another uh, demonstration before I go to specifics is uh, PBS Nova that uh, there is a, uh, was supposed to play this movie, somehow it doesn't play. Fine. What this movie was supposed to show is that, even that doesn't want to play. I'll find it at the very end, whatever this movie, I'll find it. This movie was supposed to show Harvard's sign where half of it is slippery, the other one is not, and using graffiti to show that you, you cannot write anything on a slippery side. I'll get back to that later, hopefully to be able to see it. Actually, I'm not sure why, why it's not playing. Oh, that, that one is playing this way. So you see, using paint, that one is all completely clean, and the other one, <laughs> as you know, what happens with graffiti in different places. So, <laughs> why it didn't play otherwise, I don't know. But going back to the rest of the presentation, um, let's see, that's probably yet another example, it was on my, uh, on my original slide. If we think about um, marine fouling, this is algae film, half of the surface, it's a glass slide, is free of algae. There is no biocidal effect, that's an important point. We are not adding any biocide to these surfaces. It's just absolutely impossibility for anything to stick to these surfaces that is important. Um, you could actually see probably this green part seen that th this biofilm is just getting off the surface cleanly. This is example of using this in, in the field, actually in the ocean. This is toxic paint. This is slippery surface, there's a couple of other controls. This shows two months results. We now have them in two years in, a ocean, in the ocean and slippery surfaces have no fouling on them. So there is really interesting things happening with slippery surfaces. We think about coverage with different 
macrofaulas or microfaulas on these surfaces. The last beautiful example before I go to more um, technical matters would be coming back to this uh, plant and I discussed that it's used by nature, uh, it, it was evolved to capture uh, prey and at a certain moment we had an ant in our lab, poor thing, decided to choose a bad lab. Um, so we were trying to see whether the ant will be able to, uh, to do anything on our surfaces. We actually put a little bit of jam and we could see that neither the ant nor the jam can stay put on these surfaces. And it's not only ant, but the ultimate, as we were told, we need to look at geckos. And here is a poor thing sitting inside. And here is we increasing the angle. And it's trying to hold. It's a slow down movie just for beauty of it. And no way it can handle it. Not that I know of, so it's down. And uh, if that would have no lubricating surface, we know that gecko can climb on anything we want. So let, let's take a couple of examples of how to make it. And actually, interesting science coming from that. So let's go back to aluminum. Let's actually go back to um, crystallography a little bit, and uh, as we discussed in the first or second lecture. Um, Aluminum, structural material, it's very important, but there is an interesting thing that happens with aluminum when you subject it to at high temperature to high humidity, or even better than that, if you put it in boiling water, the very top, about 100 nanometers of aluminum, will turn into a different form in aluminum oxohydroxide, which is called dermite, and it's naturally nanostructured. So if you take any aluminum surface, any one, and you put it in a boiling water, you get these structured beautiful uh, flakes of dermite, 100 nanometers thick, the rest of aluminum is fine, and here is your structured surface. Now, how difficult it is to do it? That's what we use. It's a very sophisticated experiment. So really, you just place it, place it in boiling water. The entire surface is now coated with this structured aluminum. Now, it's not enough because we're talking about functionalization to change its um, wetting properties. But aluminum, as we know from um, things of um, uh, self-assembled monolayers, and surface functionalization science is uh, really knows well what to do with different materials. So to create this interaction between your um, substrate, which is aluminum in this case, and give it a terminal functional group that interacts with your lubricant, um, you need phosphates or phosphomates molecules. So if you have a phosphate, um, and then whatever the tail you want, choose your tail depending on application you want, you now make it hydrophobic or philic towards the lubricant that you make. 
And how difficult is that? Is in fact a couple of seconds of, of fluorination bath. Now what happens then is let me show you um, the result of comparing it uh, effect of microstructure, nanostructure, or flat surface on the wetting properties. Um, for those of you who know, uh, who at least uh, know something about uh, superhydrophobic surfaces, one of the ways people were trying to improve hydrophobicity and the repelling properties of superhydrophobic uh, surfaces is to make them hierarchical. And the idea is, and indeed, which absolutely true for water in particular, is that when you have two different length scales in your material, it has much better repelling properties. Now, what we decided to compare is flat aluminum, microstructured aluminum, just by sandblasting, nanostructured aluminum, done by just placing into the water bath and making uh, the surface as a um, bermite surface, and then actually first microstructuring it, then boiling it, and creating these hierarchical surfaces of this kind. Then we were looking uh, in terms of contact angle hysteresis of either water or ethanol on these surfaces. But to get a, a little bit more information, uh, not just about a droplet on the surface, we were looking at the shearing and how the, um, these materials can uh, work if you increase shear in your surfaces. So what you see here is uh, contact angle hysteresis as a function of the spin rate. So we were spinning these surfaces at very high spinning rates, up to 10,000 RPM. And if we look at the um, uh, flat surface, very soon it contact angle goes up because spinning begins to occur. The moment you put um, uh, lubricant in it, depending whether it's microstructured, nanostructured, or hierarchical, that happens at later, uh, for microstructured and hierarchical, it happens at later stage, but for nanostructured, nanostructured is working better than hierarchical. It actually, all the way up to 10,000 RPM, it holds the lubricant, it doesn't change contact angle hysteresis, and therefore can uh, act at very high shear conditions. The reasons is that you, you actually create the surface overlayer that stays as part of your nanostructured surface, while if you take hierarchical surfaces, it will create again surface overlayer, but these bumps that are coming from microstructured surface would actually create certain uh, problems, energetically speaking, or um, uh, shear for this material. So nanotextured, regular or irregular, would be a best choice for these materials. Another interesting thing about aluminum is that, not only aluminum, but the fact that you, you can choose your texturing, it's not that critical, but nanotexture is very stable even at high shear, um, is that if the tissue sizes, for example, as in bermite, are about flakes at 10 nanometers in size, with the distances of about uh, 20, 50 nanometers between these flakes, it means that if I put that layer on any material I want, and I'll show you how we do it, 
you actually create a very transparent material, not only anti-fouling, but highly transparent. Not only highly transparent, but in fact, if I look on the dashed line, which is the performance of the, the material shown uh, under it with, with a solid line, dashed line is when it became slippery, it actually has a couple of percent, uh, percent more transmittance, uh, more transparent, because you can add anti-reflecting properties due to the feature sizes of your material that you use. Aluminum is not transparent, but as chemists, we know that we can deposit alumina by sole gel method. And the way uh, we do it is a whole uh, range of precursors that you can drop cast, you can spin on the material that you want to make slippery. It forms aluminum oxide on the surface. Then it's just the same way as everywhere else. You boil it and you get your 100 nanometer thick um, structured surface on anything you want. And anything you want means you can do it on, uh, by first of all, by gas phase, by steam. Um, you can do it on alumina with sole gel, but you can do it on other materials by spin coating. And this is examples of glass, uh, polystyrene, polysulfone, nylon, PDMS, whatever the material that was coated with uh, sole gel alumina and then surfaces were structured. More things that you can do as a chemist since you can do it as a sole gel approach. But I can also choose molecules that um, polymerize um, as a function of, let's say, UV. So certain regions will uh, take, uh, polymerization will take place and polycondensation will take place, but not in other regions. So if we do that and we use uh, molecules of that kind, I can actually pattern regions that would be slippery with regions that are not slippery. Because only in some regions you would have structure, but not in other regions. And here's an example of the substrate that was striped with the slippery parts and striped with those that are same material but non-slippery and looking on the um, droplet movement on the surface and velocity of this droplet as it goes through different regions and accelerating or uh, reducing the uh, velocity as it reaches the next region. Coming back to ice formation, that we discussed in the last lecture. And again, comparing many different things. For example, this is slippery surface. This is regular aluminum. This is aluminum with the layer of a lubricant, but no functionalization. This is aluminum that is fluorinated. This is aluminum that was fluorinated, but flat, <coughs> and uh, with the layer of lubricant flat, no structure. These are all different ways of making these surfaces. This is aluminum that was structured and fluorinated, but without the lubricant, and only this one is slippery. And we can see uh, how ice formation uh, takes place, actually, at very low temperature in this case. And the reason for that is very similar to what we discussed in the previous lecture. If you want to prevent ice from forming, you may want to keep um, the surface free of nucleation events. So if your droplets of condensing water run off the surface before they can freeze, 
the surfaces will stay um, ice-free. So what I'm showing here is an, an interesting uh, way to look at the um, droplet retention diagram. And what I'm plotting is the size of the droplet that run off the surface um, just uh, in the regular uh, uh, gravity field. And what we see, and again, I'm plotting all kinds of these controlled surfaces. But if I compare the size of the droplet for a slippery surface that would leave the surface with the any other surfaces, you actually get about a thousand times, actually more if you do it very good substrate, you have about a thousand times decrease um, in the volume of the droplets that can slide off the surface. So they slide very fast, very small droplets are already gone from the surface and in this way um, uh, ice formation doesn't, uh, doesn't take place. If it does, if we look at the ice adhesion strength and we look at that as a um, in, in looking on the slips, it's really small ice adhesion to these surfaces. Let's, very sad, time is always problematic. Just want them to show you maybe, I'll leave a couple of things for tomorrow. Not the end of the world, we still have one lecture. If you like to make your surfaces by electrodeposition, fine. You can use electrochemistry and you can make, this is an example of using polypyrrole coatings, you create certain porosity, you functionalize it, you have your surface. An example of another electrodeposition showing that one can do it even if you need surfaces with extremely high um, mechanical, good mechanical properties. So what is shown here is um, steel plate that was on which there were islands of, uh, of tungsten oxide, so nanostructured, nanostructured tungsten oxide was placed on this surface and then uh, functionalized and lubricated. And as you could see, whatever you do now, they're so mechanically strong and scratch resistant, you actually see the scratches, but its ability to repel liquids stays the same even if it's subjected to serious mechanical uh, force. Where it could be used, it could be used in, uh, let's say, medical instruments, let's say, scalpels, that would otherwise, a uh, regular scalpel, immediately get filled with blood, coated with blood. If it's hydrophobic, it's a little less blood, but it's there. And if it's, if it's slippery, or if you put this um, scalpel just for a very short time, exposure to couple of bacterial cells, they will grow very much on regular scalpel, a little bit less, but still a lot, on superhydrophobic substrate, and pretty much no bacteria on a slippery scalpel that was introduced into the um, contaminating medium. If you like colloidal assembly, and to tomorrow I will talk a lot about colloidal assembly, and also you want to know much better what is the physical principles and why these surfaces work, what to do and how structure, uh, thickness, uh, features, 
contribute to its properties. You can use inverse colloidal monolayers where you know exactly what is the size of your pores, you know exactly the structured part of your material, and then as a function of, of the sizes here, you can look at transparency. If you go to very small colloidal sizes, then your materials become anti-reflective again and fully transparent. But then you can also look at that from the point of view of um, what is the critical size of the defect that would still keep the surfaces uh, working. So we do talk uh, about their ability to, um, to be self-healing, but obviously, depending on how much damage you produce, these properties are not necessarily retained. So when you look at these very regular uh, slippery surfaces with a very well-known porosity size and then you begin to introduce defects, you know what is the width of the uh, damaged region that would give you uh, problems and it gives you ideas of what is the necessary feature sizes and uh, uh, what to consider so that that case, what I show number three, never happens. So even if cuts exist, so overlay from one side and overlay from another side come together and have the, uh, the layer of a lubricant intact. Not that I will go into details of that, you can do it in polymers. You can actually do it in all kinds of interesting design polymers where you can make sure that the interface, even if it loses your lubricant, let's say high shear conditions or evaporation, there is something uh, where you can design your polymer to have these droplets of, uh, of excessive lubricant that due to the thermodynamic uh, conditions that you, between the lubricant that you use and polymer that you use, would act as a secreting medium that would always secrete these, uh, in green you see here, lubricant secreted to the interface and the interface now green because it has uniform layer of the lubricant on it. So it's self-replenishing system in the case when the surfaces would lose their lubricant. So with that, I would actually try to uh, go immediately to the, at least, I'll come back to a couple of systems later, but I, I'll show that slide. I do believe that we've done a lot, although a lot is still being developed now, thinking about underlying physical and chemical principles that control and regulate why they work, what is the long-term stability. But what we have already done and I'll show more examples last next time. So we can do it on all material types, whether it's polymers, metals, ceramics, fabrics. We, here's a Taksin Wong that I mentioned, who uh, my postdoc who decided to do it. He was very brave. We made uh, the coat, lab coat, where sleeves are slippery sleeves. Everybody was throwing everything in him. <laughs> and you see, and he was so sure that it would work but you do see that the sleeves are clean and the rest is, and you 
can guess what they were throwing at him at that moment. But it also can be of any shape. And here is an example of refrigeration coil that I don't need to do it on a flat surface. I don't need to use lithography to do it. So it, I take the entire aluminum coil, boil it. I don't think that it would ever be done this way, but you can boil it and it will become a slippery material after that. So any shape, we can do it at any scale because you can formulate it using colloidal particles as a paint, for example, and in different environments. And actually started two years ago a company looking at how to use these surfaces. And with that, I'd say everything slips and it's absolutely perfect. So with that, 